Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, hello everyone and uh, welcome back to GodPod. It's uh, very good to be um, here today and for you to um, be logging in wherever you are listening to uh, this latest episode in GodPod. And today we have uh, a special guest. We have uh, the three usual suspects, myself, Graham Tomlin, we have Jane Williams. Hello, Jane. Good morning. Well, it's morning. Not for us, but... Uh... That's right. And we also have Michael Lloyd. Hello, Michael. Hello. Also the morning, even here in Oxford, uh, we're not in a different time, time zone, different intellectual zone, obviously, but um, not yeah. a different time zone. He has managed to kind of um, transcend geography. He hasn't managed to transcend time yet. No, no, I'm afraid they're still working on that. Yeah, that's right. Well, just as well. But uh, our very special guest on Godpod today is um, Dr. Rennie Choi. Uh, Rennie, it's great to have you with us and welcome to Godpod. Thank you very much for having me. Rennie is um, the uh, uh, lecturer and tutor in church history at St. Melitus College, and uh, we're delighted to have her on GodPod. Um, we've known her for, for many years, um, and uh, we're going to talk today about a recent book which she has just written and uh, has just been published, which is called Ancestral Feeling, Post-Colonial Thoughts on Western Christian Heritage. And um, uh, I've been really interested to kind of begin to dip my toe into the book over the last couple of weeks, um, partly because uh, I, I, I preceded Rennie in teaching church history at St. Melitus, and I was sort of fascinated by uh, the new approaches she was taking to that and just seeing how that uh, would work. And again, it's um, um, uh, helping us think about our, our history and our heritage as Christians in new ways. So, uh, Rennie, I'd love to know just to begin with, um, what, what sparked off the idea of the book for you? Where, where did it come from and why did you want to write it? Um, yeah, a few things. Um, I guess the, the most immediate event um, was when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, I distinctly remember um, going to um, the Pantheon in Paris and being confronted with a huge mural of um, Charlemagne, um, Emperor Charlemagne, who I was researching at the time um, for my doctoral thesis. And um, I had assumed he was some kind of, you know, a, like a spiritual forebearer um, because I was quite, um, interested in the ways that he standardized um, devotional practice in the early Middle Ages. That he was a very important figure to help me understand my own Christian identity. And I wasn't quite prepared um, for the nationalistic associations with this figure. Um, so when I confronted him in the Pantheon, suddenly I realized that he represents many things other than um, uh, you know, um, a, a spiritual heritage for those who are Christian. And suddenly um, it occurred to me that maybe for um, many figures in the Western Christian tradition, um, there is also what suddenly I realized um, a huge distance, a huge gulf that separates them from me as somebody who's um, Chinese in the Western Christian tradition. Um, so, you know, I was approached to write a history of Christianity um, from a non-Western perspective, um, I guess like a textbook that emphasizes um, Asian and African and Latin American church history. 
And I realized that um, I had a lot of questions to try to sort out about my, what my relationship is with um, Western church history first, um, because, uh, well, everything that I've inherited comes to me via the Western church and um, not the non-Western um, church. So, you know, as somebody whose parents converted to Christianity in Hong Kong under British rule. So um, that was the immediate impetus for writing this book, trying to sort out my relationship with these um, Western European spiritual forefathers and um, forebearers. Yeah, fascinating. And is, is it, would you describe it as a more of a, is it a personal memoir? Is it a book about race and ethnicity? Is it a book about church history? Or is it something of all of those things? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's all of those things. So my book, the structure of it, um, I've kind of conceived of it in two distinct parts. And the first part is much more theoretical and church historical. So um, I, you know, in my first part, I, um, I really explain the post-colonial critique um, about how imperialism isn't only um, a conquest of land, but also um, in a manner that still works in the way that we teach history today, um, also of, of history, of time. Um, and so I, you know, the first part of my book analyzes this whole concept of um, religious heritage or religious ancestry, which I argue um, it can still serve aims of um, imperialistic thinking today um, because it perpetually makes me um, a latecomer in my relationship with the Western tradition. Um, but then, you know, what I have really tried to do in my book is um, to offer, um, I, I guess, um, a, a more nuanced way forward about how to deal with this dilemma. Um, because to me, the answer isn't entirely um, to therefore reject my Western heritage and um, to say, well, that has nothing to do with me. Um, and so therefore um, I would now like to suddenly only teach Asian church history or African church history. Um, and to me, that's not an entirely satisfactory answer simply because um, the Western tradition has come down to me through my own experience in um, British rule to Hong Kong via my parents. So the second part of my book is, as you say, um, a lot more autobiographical and um, a little bit of a, um, well, much more um, personal in approach. And in, in the second part of my book, I, um, what I'm trying to do is think carefully about why my parents um, adopted Christianity and therefore how it changes the way um, that I interact with the Western Christian tradition um, so that it's not this kind of mono, monumental, um, uh, monolithic uh, um, scholarly discipline, but actually it can help me remember the way that it's been passed on to me in quite personal um, uh, ways that have to do with what my parents were trying to, to offer me as well. One of the things that I found, and one of the many things that, that I found really intriguing and challenging about the book, Ren, it was that was um, for you to um, say I'm rejecting the Western heritage would mean rejecting the faith that you were brought up in and, they, and the, the Anglican practice of it that had, is really precious for you. And I just find that a really interesting contrast for a lot of people um, in the Western tradition who want to keep what they call the Christian tradition without keeping the faith. So it's such an interesting contrast. A lot of people in um, in, in Britain talk about our Christian heritage without yeah. actually wanting to practice it in any way. Did, did that strike you when you were 
yeah yeah that, that's a really good um that's a very good response to my book actually and and, and I um it's a it's a great thought and I think my my parents would be very pleased to hear that um because I think for them what I do in the book is talk about how the faith has interacted with um you know some key moments or, or some key dimensions I guess in our um in our experience as um, people originally from Hong Kong when it was still under British rule. And um, so it has to necessarily do with things like my mother's experiences of um, poverty and hardship growing up. And it definitely has to do with um, the, political, um, the political context in Hong Kong, which meant that um, the reality of diaspora and uh, migration was um, you know, very integral to my experience um, as a child and as a teenager and as an adult. So um, you know, these are kind of hard facts about life, um, diaspora and migration and separation from family and hardship and poverty. And um, that's why the Christian faith meant um, a lot to them you know, in personal ways, my, my parents. So I think this was something that I wanted to continue to um, affirm um, and really bring out um, in, in my book. And, you know, I guess, um, you know, what you say about uh, in this country, um, some people wanting to um, affirm Christian heritage, uh, but not necessarily the practice or the, um, the, the, um, the, the personal religious experience of it. Um, you know, I, what I really wanted to do um, in, my, in my book um, was to say, to, 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 I guess, put um, religion and ethnicity um, back into a single lineage for me. You know, that's that's key. I think what um, globalization and colonialism has has done, and um, a lot of scholars have articulated this, um, on, upon whom I rely. Um, you know, what 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 those um, historical developments have done is to separate out um, ethnicity and religiosity. It's very easy mm -hmm. to separate out those things. And I really wanted, um, in my experience, um, those two things are linked, um, but in ways that really um, require um, the hard work of piecing things back together as well. So for me, it's not ethnicity and relig religiosity um, isn't a coherent single um, uh, entity that came very naturally to me but by the fact of being an immigrant um, you know I have to do what um, a, a particular scholar has called um, inserting my history back mm -hmm. into a history that has bypassed me so this kind of self-insertion into a western history um, is the hard work that's asked for a lot of um, diasporic people. In a sense this is um, bringing the Catholicity of the church back, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I was interested in what you said about, you know, not rejecting uh, the Western tradition and simply focusing on Asian or African mm -hmm. views of church history, understandings of church history. Um, but of course, you, you can't do that anyway, because you can't cut out any bit because they're so interconnected, you know. Yes, that's right, yeah. Uh, yeah. Augustine yeah. is, is African. Um, yes. And, and uh, so you 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 can't do it, and and the Catholicity of the, of the church is actually hugely hugely important to the the whole Christian tradition, um, and and yeah. and in a sense, listening to the different voices that have been cut out of the main flow of the story is is helping the church to be itself again. 
and helping it to be critical of itself yeah. and its its own particular voice within uh, that and, and again, sorry, Mike. That's right. Um, and again, I think one of the things that that um, that really struck me uh, is that the, the Catholicity of the Church is as much yours as it's mine, Rene. Yes. Mm. Uh, and um, and I don't think that it has always been taught like that. And so the the move now um, for, from a lot of universities and theological colleges yeah. is decolonizing. Yeah. how we teach yeah, um, and actually you really challenge that don't you um, because if we decolonize it then we're forcing you to teach a history yeah. that isn't your history which is so yeah. strange isn't it yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right I mean I fully fully acknowledge and affirm and I think it's very important to continue to decolonize the curriculum and there's many ways that people are doing this um, you know there's been important trailblazers in this and this is definitely something that we should all continue to do I have much to learn in this regard but what I try to argue is that's not um that's not going to solve all our problems and it doesn't def it definitely doesn't solve all my problems um because you know it it's a bit ironic that um I became a, a medieval historian because I felt such a you know, personal affinity to the Western Christian tradition because it explains so much about who I am and um, you, you know the language I use in prayer and what you know what I do on a Sunday and you know the, the what I do when I read the Bible and things like that um, and so you know I worked really hard to become an expert in um, the um, in medieval Christianity and um, and then I found it very ironic when people try to make me feel um, you know, more um, included in discussions by um, pointing at the fact that um, as a Chinese person, I've got um, a, a heritage that, um, that my Asian um, Christian heritage can date back to um, Nestorian Christianity. And um, it, and then it dawned on me, well, I, I actually have, I, I don't know very much about Nestorian Christianity. And are you now telling me that I have to become an expert in that because I'm a Chinese? Um, <laughs> When, when actually, um, you know, my the way I conceive of my religious lineage is, is via the West. And in a way, um, it's a very difficult predicament to be in because um, it is by necessity that a lot of um, my heritage is European. I mean, and Mike, you've, you've brought up um, Augustine. And yes, we all know that he is um, African, he's North African, but actually a lot of the manuscripts by which we um, can access him um, come via... Um, Europe, Western European um, monasteries and centers of learning. So um, I think that's something, one of the things I tried to point out in my book is that um, the West is actually unavoidable. Um, but what Mike does bring up, um, and, and Jane, you as well, talking about the Catholicity of the church, I tried um, in my book to constantly insist on using um, like a single frame um, and not to think about um, it, it, not to think about, you know, metropole versus the periphery. Um, so in, in thinking about, you know, imperialism, we um, often think about colonial action as having, you know, taken place um, elsewhere, um, you know, a global empire out there versus the Christianity um, here in England. Um, and what I'm trying to do, you know, um, in this book um, is, 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 as you say, um, to approach it more in, in a more Catholic way, by which I mean, um, I want to challenge always to protest against a simplistic um, spatial conceptualization or a, a simplistic linearity that um, is always 
conceiving of, um, you know, English theologians as bringing things overseas or um, an imagination that, you know, conceives of Christian expansion as a sort of arrow going in one direction from origin to destination. Um, because these are the things that would perpetually render us um, latecomers or recipients. And so I'm trying always to collapse time and geography into a single frame in my book um, by doing things like um, hearing the voice of my mother in English hymns, or um, I talk about the problems with um, heritage spaces being um, uh, um, communicated in, in an authoritative um, way by experts only. I talk about the value of um, what's called the living heritage approach to church heritage sites. And um, so these are ways that in my book, I'm trying to always um, affirm constantly practical ways that we can um, think about the Catholic Church and it's in, in through a single frame. How does that work out in in practice in the teaching of church history? I mean, that's your that's your day job um, to teach church history to to students and ordinands and that. And I suppose you know, as, as someone who's done that in the past, when I started out teaching church history, you know, you, I'd, I'd read the standard books, and I guess the way I was taught church history and began to teach it myself was very much that you know, beginning with the early church and beginning with the yes. kind of and then maybe yeah. up to the medieval right, period. Yeah. And you know, Christianity kind of began in the in the sort of um, around sort of Jerusalem, Alexandria, uh, Antioch, and then it kind of headed westwards to, mm. to the, the, mid, the yeah. medieval world. And, and it kind of, you know, it issues on through the Enlightenment, and then it goes to the 19th century, and it ends up with sort of Anglicanism. That's, that's the kind of way. Yes, yes. And maybe that was because we were teaching Anglican ordinance, but... Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And then, in, in, you know, in time, be, beginning to discover that, uh, you know, for example, in the Middle Ages, in the sort of early Middle Ages, great strength of Christianity was perhaps more in sort of Asia Minor than it was in in in, in Western Europe and and um, and other sort of narratives. So how, how has it affected your approach to teaching church history and passing on the this heritage to, to your students? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, in one way, I'm in, in one way I'm still trying to figure that answer out because my my book, um, the, the, you know, one of the key arguments in it is that if you're an Anglican, um, there is you know, you, you don't have a choice but to understand the Western Christian tradition, even if you're Protestant, for that matter, or like my parents um, were, um, they, they um, were raised, uh, sorry, they came to faith through the Baptist um, church. And so they, 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 by necessity, have to understand um, developments in church history um, that took place um, in Western Europe. There simply isn't a choice in that. So, um, one of my chapters, I offer some, you know, um, there, there's two diagrams in there about how um, exactly the kind of um, way of narrating and teaching church history um, that goes through exactly those kind of events that you've just summarized right now for us, Bishop Graham. Um, and you can see how prominent Western Europe is in that. And um, I guess. You know, in my mind, if you are an Anglican or Protestant, um, you don't you don't have a choice but to to learn about those subjects. So for me, what I have arrived at is, I guess, still a bit of an experiment, which is um, to discover whether some of the um, we can undermine some of the hegemony or the um, the um, the exclusiveness, the exclusivity that um, is a result of this way of teaching church history if we were to allow students to be a lot more autobiographical in the way that they approach these subjects um, 
so for example we have um you will know this um jane and bishop graham um in the our church history module one of our assignments is um the resources for others in which you are asked to um talk about an important theological figure and um a lot of our important theological figures you know like luther and calvin and augustine and um, aquinas um you know uh, do come from the Western Christian tradition. I think unavoidably so, that's our, our heritage. Um, but how can you make a student feel like this is actually their, their heritage as well, that they have ownership over this? Um, and I think part of it is that we have to unlearn some of our ways um, by which we access important theological events and figures um, to always be receiving um, kind of the expert um, uh, a diagnosis or expert um, conclusion about what these figures should mean to you and why they're significant. Um, what if we allowed students to explore um, in their own ways why a particular event or theological figure is important for in light of the events, in light of their own life history, in light of their own ancestral history, in light of their own um, uh, uh, geography of origin. So those are just some ways I hope we can undermine, um, you know, this sense of authoritative discourse that comes from above um, and really give freedom for students to discover for themselves why a particular heritage, what, what it means that they have received this heritage. Um, yeah, how, how they can read their own family and their own identity back into these subjects. I, I'd quite like to um, ask how we do that, mm. uh, because my experience of teaching is is that I, I've kind of inherited the, the usual academic discourse of, of trying to keep yourself out of it. Yeah. Um, not because one's pre pretending to an objectivity that isn't possible, in which the postmodern world has shown yeah. us not possible, quite rightly, but because it so or so easily slips in a kind of this is what I think assertion rather than argument. Yeah. And and, and and sometimes ill-informed assertion at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so how do one how does one how does one get the autobiographical engagement without the kind of sloppiness that so often <laughs> come in with autobiographical assertion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a great point. I mean, I think this is why it's all an experiment still. And I would love, I would absolutely love for everybody who's listening um, on this podcast to read the book. Um, so first of all, to understand the post-colonial critique, to really understand the theoretical um, challenges that are involved. So that's the first part of my book. But then th there's a sort of hinge in my book where I explain um, what I'm trying to do. Um, that comes in chapter three, you know, how I'm trying to collapse this separation between the Western Christian tradition and then my own little self um, by reading my own ancestors and my own history back into this very monumental subject. And I'm explaining the theory in that in, in chapter three. And that kind of sets up what I do in the rest of the book. And I'd love for your listeners really to um, tell me whether I've been successful and um, even more importantly, to tell me whether they feel like they can um, experiment with the same kind of method for themselves. Um, I'd love to hear of people's own ancestral stories or their own biographical stories and tell me whether that changes the way that they can approach a topic as monumental as, you know, the history of the Western church. Um, 
I think what I'm really trying to do is find a kind of coherence between this, you know, authoritative subject and the biographies of marginalized Christians. So it's not, you know, to make, um, it's, it's not to kind of undermine any sort of, um, uh, an accurate reading of the subjects and it's definitely not to say that any sort of reading goes and we can read Luther in you know in, in, in infinite number of ways and they're all accurate ways of reading Luther whatever you want um, I don't think that's what I'm saying what I am saying is that it should matter that people like my father and my mother read Luther it should really really matter that people whose English isn't um, their first language or people who grew up in the Caribbean or in Africa or in Asia um, and are Christian because of a, you know a prior um, relationship of power, it really should matter that they have taken on um, the effort um, to not only re, um, learn European languages but actually read Calvin and to read Luther and to read Julian of Norwich. So you know how does that change the readings of Norwich? That's uh, that of Julian of Norwich or the our readings of Luther that people like my parents um, have have read have read these canonical figures. Um, and I, I make the same argument actually about um, heritage sites. Um, one of my chapters talks about our visits to, um, you know, you know, these English heritage sites that are frequently um, um, they're custodians of abbey ruins. And um, I talk about um, a day that, well, I guess just a day that I spent watching my children at play at Lessons Abbey um, in southeast London. Um, do you know that site? Um, so it's it's an it's Abbey ruins. That's actually quite unusual in that it's open to the public. Um, so you don't have to pay an admission fee, and um, you can walk in and people picnic there and um, have parties there, and um, you can watch beautifully just children making use of these Abbey ruins um, and um, feeling really at home in those spaces in in that space, which I think is quite unusual because a lot of times you visit abbey ruins and you are there to learn about what the Cistercians or the Augustinians did and you have to buy the guidebook and there's so much information to download and it just reminds you of the fact that you're approaching English church history as a foreigner and as a tourist when actually in your heart you feel like actually this is actually my heritage and I do feel a natural connection to this place so why do I why am I perpetually reminded that I'm a latecomer or a tourist and at this place when I watch the children my children playing at this abbey site at these abbey ruins I realized um you know, they're, they're changing my meaning of this place. It really does matter to me that they've been there and they're making memories at this place. And um, they're forming a relationship to this very historic Christian site. And um, that's something that's very important for marginalized people to um, feel that they're able to do and to feel affirmed in doing that. So um, it's a bit of an experiment how this works in terms of written assi assignments um, that are um, validated by Durham. Um, but hopefully, you know, um, your listeners can help with this experiment and give um, ideas about what what works what doesn't work and whether it really does um, undermine some of the um, authoritative discourse that can so often marginalize. I, I wonder whether part of this is about expanding our understanding of what our heritage is you know I haven't read any Japanese Christian theologians but when I do they will be my heritage. Mm. Uh, if I, when I read Ugandan theologians uh, and church historians or whatever, <clears throat> they are my heritage. I, I am blind to those, those bits. Yes. But they are mine because I'm part of the, the universal Catholic family of, of Christ. Yes. And, and 
And I'm, I'm just, it's about exploring what my heritage is and, and, and curing my own myopia about it. Mm. Um, and and I, 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 it sort of struck me also that the point about trying to take ourselves out of academic discourse, mm. I, I do wonder if that's um, a luxury of somebody who knows they're automatically in that discourse. So, you know, you can take yourself out of it because it's all organised around around you actually anyway mm. and and whether um, therefore the the pressure to hear um voices comes mostly from people who for whom that isn't true um unless we actually force our voices into this history in some way or insert our voices is a better phrase that you used Renee yeah. and then they're not automatically there That's so right. if, yeah. if we so if, if we take ourselves out of that discourse we're not there at all <laughs> Yeah. And I think that may be true for people who whose voices haven't um, been registered as part of the heritage in the way that Mike has been talking about, and that and that we increasingly perhaps need to do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Graham, you're on mute. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mistake. This will take it time and time again. Um, I'm conscious that uh, time is uh, coming towards the end of our, our discussion. It's been fascinating to talk about this, um, Rennie. And um, uh, if people wanted to get in touch with you uh, about this, I mean, you're running a project as, uh, yourself, aren't you, at the moment, around um, yeah. how uh, Christians interact with particular sort of um, major uh, heritage sites here in the UK. If they wanted to get in touch with you about that uh, or about some of the things you've been saying about you know, this idea of inserting ourselves and our own particular histories into the, the common history of Christian heritage. How would they do that? Yeah, I'm, I, so I'm, um, my address is on, my email address is on the St. Miletus website um, under my name. Um, and uh, also there's a um, website, like you say, um, that's promoting my um, newest research project for which I'm inviting um, participants for anybody who's living in London. Um, that's This project has come out of this book and it's a kind of a practical um, extension of some of the arguments in this book. How do we insert our own autobiographical narrative into these monumental heritage sites and um, um, places of significance. Um, so um, you can Google that. Um, that one, that the project, the name of that project is um, London's Iconic Churches, Inclusive Interpretations of Christian Heritage. Very good. Yeah, it reminds me of an exercise I often used to do with students, which is to kind of the beginning of a course in church history, getting them to to try to trace their own history back as far as they could, their own personal church history. You know, what are the communities and traditions and people that have shaped, yeah, their, not just in their own lifetime, but even before that as well. And um, and I would often tell my own sort of ancestral story of how it kind of goes back to a little Methodist church in the West. Where John Wesley once preached and converted all these ex-German Lutherans who landed in Ireland. Uh, to, to Methodism, which is the church in which my grandmother came to. <laughs> my um, mother was born, was um, uh, shaped as well. And so I've had this sort of, you know, spiritual connection to what yeah. he before him. To, yeah, 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 yeah. So that he, was, he sort of had his spiritual awakening and so on. Just, as you say, just finding that moment of finding your own story as it plugs into these wider stories is a fascinating and really enriching Yeah, story. that's right. Yeah, yeah. And those are stories I'm always so keen to hear.
everybody accesses church history um you know what well, well, there's always everybody has a, a personal um story by which um they have come to faith and so um you know that i think that should have some implications for how we do church history thank you so much for um joining us on god for today the book if you uh, are interested to get it is called ancestral healing post-colonial -post thoughts on western christian heritage by Rennie Tao Choi. that's uh, why if you're putting in the um putting it into, into google it's published by scm and uh, the scm website has it is uh, 15.99 but people in the 20 pounds you can get it cheaper on, on, on that site but uh, and it's, it's it's really well written as well just to say it's, it's a good read and it's it's, it's accessible and, and really empathy written so many congratulations on the book it's great to have talked together today so um thank you Renny, for joining us and to jane and mike as well thank you for the discussion Thank you. Uh, goodbye, and we will see you again for another God Pod before too long. Bye-bye. That was God Pod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.